You are now listening to High Five the Podcast, a movie podcast for people who like other stuff too. Now let's join our hosts Q and J as they broadcast live from the writer's room. The show starts in one... Genius plot uh, to, and we've made one decision that's that going to lead us down this path of, to a just huge downfall. Oh yeah, I mean everyone's going to die just gonna, <laughs> in a very bloody manner. But that I mean that really was a problem for me in this in the, putting this list together is because again you cut out a couple of those really bad ones. There's not a bad one in the bunch. I will say that. So there's a top echelon for sure. But then organizing them based on either favorites or which one is the best, I have a real problem with. So I say, okay, so before we go any further on it, I say let's high-five on it and just get right into it. No. (laughs) That was an unexpected plot twist. This isn't top five M. Night Shyamalan movies. We wouldn't be able to fill out that list. (laughs) It would be The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable. Unbreakable, and Split. The end. The end. <laughs> Goodbye. The end of top five list. I, I mean, Airbender's I, not going on. I'd there. put signs on there. You would. Yeah. See, not the village though. I. I'm, I Definitely not the happening. My wife really likes the village. Really. The problem with for me with the village was that I predicted the ending as a joke while watching it. I could fix it in five minutes. Do fix it. Okay. So the or less than that. So the correct ending of, uh-huh. for that movie should have not involved them being on a weird reservation at all in the park. But even if they wanted to leave that part, okay? Even if M. Night Shyamalan was like, no, it has to end with the reveal that they're in a park the whole time. Sure. The clever twist, or or dual twist, if you will, should have been that the monsters are real. I've thought the same thing. The monsters should be real, and they made this reservation as basically the last bastion of humanity's safety in this world. Right. So the whole time, the setup is they're not real. And even the elders are, like, dressing up as them and shit. Right. And then the blind girl goes out into the wilderness, and you see that they actually are real. Right. And that's the big revelation. Well, what would be great is kind of a dual twist for this, and we're getting too deep into uh, Shyamalan. <laughs> Something that has nothing to Coen do with Brothers the Coen Brothers episode. But, okay, follow me on this. I'm okay. going to use your basis. Okay. The elders, it, they were real, and they knew they were real. Yes. Over time, they stopped showing up, so the elders are not sure if they're real, so they started dressing up as them. To perpetuate... To perpetuate the safety of the community. Okay. The blind girl gets out, realizes the whole world is an apocalyptic cesspool, and that they are real, but they had forgotten that that community existed. And then she is the... She's the reason that they remember. And so now they come back again. So basically brings about the the downfall of this village because she questioned because the elders. Because she questioned it. Yeah. Even though Even though that would kind of change the whole subtext of the film. No, I actually really like that because it it is one of those like because you wanted or M Night Shyamalan wanted her to be rewarded for her questioning like don't believe what they tell you, but it would have been a more interesting thing like you said to be don't believe what they tell you. Oh shit. You should have believed what they told <laughs> yeah, you, right. because now everything is ruined. Like it's not ma- it's not a matter of questioning questioning the establishment movie as it is right now. Right. It's more of a they did what they did for good reasons, even if it wasn't the right solution. Right. But they did what they did for reasons that were noble, 
And because she went against noble reasons, she brought about the downfall that they were so scared and of. And then everything is just yeah. goes I mean, to it shit. would sort of be like the double twist in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Totally. Because it's like, oh, no, the, the aliens or the apocalypse isn't real, and John Goodman is just crazy. And then you you believe that going through. Spoiler alert. Sorry, everybody. Um, but then she gets out and realizes that they are real, and he was right all along. And, but he's but burned he to is a, also still crazy. Yes, and he's burned to a crisp now in this bunker, and she has nowhere to go back to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, you're right. So there we go. You're welcome, Midnight Shyamalan. We just fixed your movie. High five. Ground noise of Detroit is crying and RoboCops. Is it? Crying and robot police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of our two listeners who still can ha- have access to computers in Detroit. <laughs> well, most likely. Just stopped listening. Most likely they're connected to generators and they're cranking it. <laughs> and so, like, they, uh, sometimes their arm gets tired and they lose crank right before a good joke and they have to keep going. They're like, again. oh, shit, no, 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 no. And then like, I got to turn this back on to drown out the sound of crying and robot police. That's true. Yeah, that's fact. That's exactly what it's like. I'm not going to be vacationing in old Detroit anytime soon. No, neither am I. <laughs> yeah. It follows. Yeah, it does. <laughs> As a fact. Uh, so, Coen Brothers. Yeah. Not. Are you addressing them the, or are you telling me? Not the Wachowskis. Mm-mm. Not you can't say the Wachowski brothers anymore. You have to say the Wachowski siblings. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I didn't say the brothers. I said the Wachowskis. Yeah, you did. But I'm just so saying that, you, that for that all of our me. listeners, you have to add siblings at the end because it But they have both now yeah. gone through they have transition. Both, I was going to say transformed, but that was the wrong word. Transitioned they is have the correct. Both transition. Yeah. Which is you know, not to like go down this this pathway, but just it's a fascinating thing to me that yeah. brothers not only can both be transgendered but that they both want to be transgendered and fully transition yeah that's huge and are still really good directors and i put cloud atlas up against anyone who will naysay it. whoa yeah i don't know that that's true suck it cloud atlas is great is it though it is but is it though wait no, it is. It still is. <laughs> it I was thinking of it. It definitely 100%. is. I'll sit and watch Cloud Atlas with anybody and talk about how great it is with. All right, you heard it. Tweet at us if you yeah. want to sit down with Jay. If and you watch disagree, you're wrong. And watch flat out Cloud Atlas. Yeah, he will. He has agreed to sit down with anyone who wants to watch it with him, especially the Wachowski siblings. <laughs> Yes, especially yeah. the witch out. Now, what I will say... Q will also do that. What I will say is that I'm going to eliminate the possibilities of watching the Matrix sequels and Jupiter Ascending. Those are off the table. So it's just Cloud Atlas. Ma- Matrix, Speed Racer, V for Vendetta, and Cloud Atlas. V for Vendetta was not them. It wasn't? No, that's... Uh, what's his face? Who directed Die Hard? Uh, John Bruce Willis? Mc- John McTiernan. Oh, they had they produced it or they had something to do with that movie. Did they write it? Um, they it it looks like their style. I could have. Will you look up and make sure it's John McTiernan too? Yeah. That I'm not just like making things up. James You're McTeague. James McTeague. Writers Lily Wachowski and Lana Wachowski. Okay, so they wrote it. Okay, so, so I was James right McTeague. about that. So who the fuck? Will you look up what else he's done? James McTeague has directed. Oh, he did Ninja Assassin. He did V for Vendetta, um, as as we know. Um, he did uh, the TV series Marco Polo. 
He has done some of the Sense Eight that the Wachowskis put oh, together. Okay. He did The Raven, the 2012 The Raven, and he did Ninja Assassin. Hmm. Okay. I don't yeah. know why I thought it was John McTiernan. I don't know either. Probably because <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, prob- clearly. Clearly I'm. Okay. Should so we talk about the Coen brothers? Again, once again, originally we were <laughs> going to talk about them, and we went down the path of M. Night Shyamalan. And then now, now we've talked about the Wachowski siblings. So now let's talk about the Coen and Fairley brothers. <laughs> the, oh, let's, let's just talk about the Fairley brothers for a minute. So, Dumb and Dumber. Am I right? Great movie. Dumb and Dumber 2, not so great. Not great. And Actually, now you mean Dumb and Dumber 2 as in T-O-O? Yes. Okay. No, it's just T-O. Or is it just T-O? It's just T-O. Okay. They did the double joke. Oh, I got it. Yeah. So where it's like two, but also just, two. Just two. Just the preposition. Right. Got it. Yeah. My God, we did it again. Hilarious. Okay, Coen <laughs> right, Brothers. Coen Brothers. They're also a good directing team. My God, are they a good directing team. So they've done a couple things. Yeah, uh, I think with the, the last count was 17 with Hail Caesar. Yes. It just came out. Now, all right, so right off the bat, I want to address something with you. So when we were talking about coming up with this list um, and deciding to do the Coen Brothers movies, right? you had mentioned... Are we going to include movies that were directed separately? I did because I wanted to contain it to just the ones that they directed as a okay. duo. Okay. So here's the deal. Okay. You used Hudsucker Proxy as an example of a movie that was not directed by both of them. It is? Or they are all directed by both of them. Because here's the deal. Up until 2003, they could not both be credited as directors per the director's guild. Ah. So up until 2003, Joel Cohen had been listed as the sole director on every movie with Ethan Cohen getting a producer credit. Interesting. It changed with the lady killers. Okay. So the lady killers was the first time that they were able to both be credited as the director because get this bullshit. The director's guild stuff says that, so the bullshit about the Screen Actors Guild thing is this. Or, I mean, the Director's Actor, Director Director's guild. Actor Something Guild? Yes. I like that. Uh, I'm a big fan of their work, is, by the way. The rule is that unless you are an established duo, you cannot be credited. You cannot share a dual director's well, credit. Well, here's the, here's the question about that. How do you become an established duo if you're not able to credit yourselves together as a duo? Uh... That seems like a huge catch twenty two. The Duffer brothers are fucked. <laughs> they are fucked. Like actually, they're pretty established now with Stranger Things. I would have to say. Um, I I definitely agree, but um, I really don't know. There is no like actual thing where they talk about what the rules are. I think it's kind of like the MPAA thing where they right, like, just, they just rate things arbitrarily. They just, there's a bunch of old codgers in a room that says, I don't like boobs. So this is our violence is totally fine. So I think in 2003, that's when yeah. the director's guild was finally like, all right, you're an established duo now, now well, that you've done like 13 movies together. What I will say is that <clears throat> IMDB is on the ball because they've gone back and added Ethan Cohen in the director's slot for all of their early movies. It just has, in parentheses, nice. uncredited, uncredited beside him. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of weird because I was like, I knew that they directed these together. Yeah. Everyone knows they directed them. Like, everyone knows they directed Fargo together. So what's it's weird, a well-known too, fact. That is, that, is, that is a fact. What's weird, though, is so, like, we were talking, um, and earlier, you know, you were like, they really haven't done anything that's bad. 
really, like really bad. I would say that. I mean, Lady Killers is bad, and I, I can't think of anything else that they've done that's no, just it's, flat out bad. No, it's true. Uh, it seems like they are very smart when they choose their projects because there are several things that they have written and have not directed, uh-huh. such as uh, Unbroken. The war drama. I don't no. know if you oh. remember that. Wait, was that the one that um, that uh, Angelina Jolie ended up doing? Yes. Okay. So the Coen brothers wrote that. They also wrote Bridge of Spies. Oh, the Spielberg I did, movie. Actually, I didn't. I did hear about that because that was one. They were one of the reasons that I was interested in seeing that movie because I was like, oh, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, the World Coen. War Two, the Coens. Like I was like, okay, this is going to be really good. It wasn't. But I was very interested in seeing it, right. mainly because their name was attached in that plethora of greatness. As we've talked about it before, Garfield. Yes. According to Bill Murray. Yeah, according to Bill Murray. Yeah. Right. According it to Bill Murray. It was a different Cohen. C O H E N. Right. Cohen. Right. Um. So yeah. So these guys, it, it's very weird to me. There's several directing pairs that I that I immediately think of. Most of or some of them are siblings for sure, but you've got the Wachowski siblings, which right. we mentioned. You've got the Duffer brothers, who are definitely on the come up. Oh man, um, the Cohen brothers. But then you've also got like Chris Miller and Phil Lord, right? Who are another like who great, should be brothers? They should be. You've got the Farrelly brothers. Yes. Now I wouldn't say that they're great directors, but they're brothers. But they're brothers, and, and they, they have had, directed. I would say they're batting a solid five hundred. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. just under. I would say half, I don't know sports. <laughs> half of their movies are really good. Yes, and half of their movies are really bad. Yes, and I even might say it's not half and half. They might be batting closer to three hundred. <laughs> I'm gonna assume that that means bad. That's about thirty percent. Got it. Okay, thirty percent. Excellent. I also don't know math. So, what is okay. that? It's like if you have ten gummy bears, uh huh, and seven of them are rotten. <gasps> Yeah, they have three good gummy bears. Oh, that's awful. They're batting 300 that's gummies. That's really bad. Yeah. There's so much room for better gummies. There's so many better gummies. Um, okay. Also, you could you could think of it this way. It's like uh, the uh, any any flavor beans from ooh, Harry Potter. Yes. Like you grab a handful of tin, uh-huh, uh-huh. and you get a peppermint, uh-huh. and you're like, ooh. Oh, yeah. And then you get a booger, and you're like, uh. uh. And then you get a cherry, and you're like, oh. Uh. And then you get a grape, and you're like, ooh, I'm on a roll. And then the next seven are semen. <laughs> I hate it when I get the semen jelly yeah. bean. So um, I would say when it comes to the Fairley Brothers, you know, you've got the Three Stooges. Yep. You've got Dumb and Dumber 2. Yep. And you've got all their later seven. It's all semen. Right. You know who we should talk about? The Coen Brothers. <laughs> we probably should. <laughs> But okay, that's so the running theme of this episode Eth- is we're Ethan never going to actually talk about them. Ethan Cohen got the shaft, except he got to marry Frances McDormand. Right. So that's that's a plus. Is and that's it? a win. Is it? I mean, she's a great actress. She is a great actress. She wore a, a But a, does a great actress make for a great wife? Maybe. You don't know. She though. can pretend she's always happy. That would be like uh well, I got to marry uh, a a great baker. But does that make her a good partner? I mean, I don't know, but she makes the shit out of stuff. For some reason, I thought you were going to take that analogy. It's like, I got to marry Macy Gray. <laughs> and I was like, that's nothing's good about that. No. There's nothing good about I that. I to say goodbye, and I joke. <laughs> Try to walk away, and I stumble. 
<laughs> Sound like I choked on a frog. <clears throat> it's true. Anyway, so, so the Coen brothers. <laughs> so oh. who knew the Coen brothers? They're directors. Yeah. They've done things. They've done so many good things. That's what I was talking about earlier is this list was so hard to put together for me because one of the amazing things I love about the Coen brothers is that they're almost genre files. Oh, for like sure. all of their movies jump around to different genre types. Some are hysterically funny. Some are amazingly cinematic. Some have a perfect mix of the two. Some are zany and quirky. Some are, are just deadpan serious. Some are art house and some are like kind of scary. Fart house. Yeah. Fun house. Yeah. They go from art house to fun house. No, I said fart house. Oh, <laughs> From Art House to Fart House. That's also the name of High Five's autobiography. <laughs> and the Fairley Brothers biography. We're fighting on rights. Yeah, it is. For true. that. That's fact. Um, but that was one of the reasons that it took me so long to put this list together because some of my favorites are definitely not what I would consider their cinematic best. I am so glad you said that because much like I've done in the past, my list is also comprised of, of the Coen Brothers movies that I personally enjoyed the most. So I don't know that these are going to, especially in their ranking, like where mm -hmm. they fall on the list. I don't know that I'm sure people are going to get up in arms and they're going to wring their hands and they're going to tear their clothes off. But this off. one won a bunch of awards and this one. And they're going to punch a... babies. They're, they're probably going to do that anyway. Let's gonna, be honest. That's fair. Cause that's our fan base yes. for sure. Uh, baby punchers. Um, uh, <laughs> The high five punchers. That's right. The high five baby punchers. The high five baby punchers. Someone specific. make a jersey. High five, high five baby, baby punchers. punchers. And a logo. Yes. We need a logo for the high five baby punchers. Email it to us. My five at high five podcast.com. So, um, yes. My, li my list is a complete mix because there are some that I could not get off the list just because I love them so much. Uh -huh. And I, I can make an argument for their cinematic quality. Okay. But I truly struggled on the top three. Because I was like, well, this one's technically a better film, but I like this one better. You know what's weird? I did not struggle at all on my top three. Really? I struggled on my four and five. And there was one that I have as an honorable mention that I am still, as of this minute, kicking myself about. Because I think it's better than almost anything they've done. But we're going to talk about it later. At the end of the show. <laughs> Or if you mention it, I'll bring it up that it was an honorable Perfect, mention. perfect. So fuck it. Let's let's get into it, man. Yeah, okay. Let's so, start. So Jay, kick it off with your number five. Okay, so my number five actually might be surprising to some, but my number five <gasps> is, is, yeah, <laughs> the end, everybody. surprise. <laughs> is uh, Raising Arizona from All 1987. Right. Yeah. Um, the reason I say it's surprising is because I think a lot of people would claim that that's one of their top best i don't think it's surprising because it is also my number five is it really yes oh high so five. let's let's coalesce on that yeah we'll use this as a mutual number five time okay i like it when we do this we so get the I. chance to like just openly discuss it so raising arizona for me is is one of the best in their sequence of becoming who they are as directors i so couldn't agree more i mentioned blood simple for them as my favorite one of my favorite directorial debuts i think it was number yes. three or yeah, four absolutely and i think blood simple is a fantastic cinema masterpiece sure um but i think when they got to raising arizona their second film and they started to really delve into that quirky humor they really established what they were going to incorporate 
in their characters and their dialogue going forward. Because you can even take some of their more more serious movies, and they all have those character quirks yep. that make them extremely watchable. I'm so glad that you said that because I absolutely agree. I feel like this is where they really developed that Cohen flavor. Mm-hmm. So this is like the training ground or the proving ground for these these. Uh, what do they call it? Proto character types. Say, I was gonna say brothers. Yeah, no. <laughs> For the proto character types, archetypes that yeah. they are going to continue through the rest of their career. Yeah, like we've talked about it um, so far that they've done uh, jumped genres all over the place. I think the only thing they haven't done is like a documentary, maybe, and a straight up horror film. They also haven't done a straight up sci fi movie. I would love them to do like a just a sci-fi. real like, like a moon hard sci-fi. Like if they did a moon type sci-fi movie, I I would lose. I'd it. be into it. I could totally see them doing a movie about the colonization of a new planet. Oh my so god! So like just dealing with all the characters yes. who are going to be on the initial colonization ship that's going to go. Did there. they write Alien Covenant? <laughs> they I should think have. They did. I think they did. I think they did. Um, Stars well, James Franco. Doesn't that like oddly feel like a Coen Brothers like movie? It's like okay, the first crew that's heading to the colony and like all of their weird like interactions and maybe like something fucks up on the ship. But it would have no. Here's what it would have to be to stick with the Coen vendetta, if you will, uh-huh. because this is something that dates back to Blood Simple, and you can almost point to in every one of their films one person would have to make a single error that led to the rest of the plot. Okay. They would have to make a single decision to do or withhold information from the rest of the crew. They'd have to make that decision that then expanded into the plot. So it would have to be a maintenance crew member who made a mistake on the on the ship and but then covered it up hell, covered it up and then the rest of the film is them dealing with the ship falling to hell right while they're trying that to would be it. a coen brothers Ooh, i would movie. watch the fuck out of that right um so raising arizona yeah. so raising this is Ar- gonna be i have a feeling this is much like the coen brothers we tend to run on tangents and we, so do they we do their movies can kind of be all over the place well and one of the things with raising arizona that i also think sort of established them as the directors that everyone now knows and loves is anyone who's ever talked about working with the coens just talks about how meticulous they are sure like you know, they talk about how the scripts are written out exactly how they want them to be written out. They're extremely um, descriptive in their scene settings and their and their cinematography direction. Um, and even in this film, Raising Arizona, they had that pattern. And Nicolas Cage in them came to heads a yeah, lot butt heads. because he came to them on a weekly basis. Like, I've got this idea for my character. I've got this idea for dialogue. And they're like, great. We don't care. Go do your scene. Right. Do and it he, like we want yeah. you to. And he had a big, he was very vocal about that they didn't work well together. He thinks they're smart, and obviously he loves Raising Arizona. And I think the movie that came out from it is a testament to their process. Oh, absolutely. Because it shows, uh, first off, Nicolas Cage is crazy. Right. We all know this. Um, but it shows that when holding to their singular vision, now it bombed at the box office. I mean, Straight up, it, it I think it made sixty million on a ninety million dollar budget, but, or uh, no, six million on a nine million dollar budget. And but I'll put this out there for me personally, box office return means so absolutely little because just this past weekend, Fate of the Furious, 
established yes. itself as the highest earning worldwide release of all time. And I can tell you with one. I don't understand your point. I can tell you with 100% confidence that that movie it's the is best movie of all time. <laughs> like that's what that's what that would have to be synonymous with. No, if we I were going to go down that path, like all the Transformers movies would have to be art house. No, no, classics. no. I'm just saying that it bombed. So it yeah. was it was a financial failure for the movie studio. But it was, and it, and even early critical reviews of the movie were somewhat favorable, but pretty mixed. It actually took a while to kind of set in and become the cult classic that it is now. I would agree, but then again, I would say that some of you know, back then when it came out in 87, I would say that movie critiques weren't as, I would say, sophisticated as they are nowadays. I think back then a lot of it was very populist and having to, you know, present it on camera, get, you know, readership for a magazine. Like there's a famous story that I really love about this movie is that when, um, Siskel and Ebert went and saw it, and when it was screened for mm-hmm, them, mm-hmm. Siskel leaned over to Ebert midway through the film and said, "This is why we love movies." Interesting. Like, like I didn't that, know that. That's to cool. me is the the critics that I respect historically almost unanimously praised this film for what it did. Well, I will say this, um, you know, something to to that account. I think this movie was way ahead of its time. I agree, especially upon recent reviewing yeah to get ready for this episode it was way ahead of its time it holds up so well absolutely to think that it was made i mean this year it will be have been made 30 years ago Wait, yeah 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 30, 30 years, years ago it's 30 years old and if you watch movies and again i know time time is not a factor in, in cinema classics but when you watch this movie it holds up better than modern comedies in a lot of cases when it oh, comes to sure. the writing, when it comes to the sophistication, especially when it comes to the directing and cinematography. And it feels it never feels dated, even though it obviously is set in the late 80s. I totally 100 percent agree. Um, so it's like Seinfeld or Friends. Like you can watch it and you don't think, oh, 90s. Right. Like, they don't have cell phones. Not everyone's tap tapping away on Twitter. Sure. It's just funny. Great. It's just funny. Yes. Um. So this one kind of established some uh, what what I guess would go on to be considered Cohen brother tropes. Um, so you've got kind of kind of the hapless heroic character, right? Right. Um, in high, high. Um, you've got the uh, kind of meddling, not necessarily bad guys, but kind of the several shades of bad guys in right. John Goodman. Which, okay, can we pause and talk about how great John yeah. Goodman's Gale is yes. in this film? Totally. Uh, this is one of many collaborations they've done with John Goodman. I think the Coen brothers get some of the best work out of him than, oh, I agree. than, than anyone has. I, agree. I mean, even when he has bit parts, like, he has a bit part in Inside Lewin Davis. He has and a bit part in, I mean, it's a relative bit part, but in comparison to the rest of the movie, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Next one I was going to mention. Both of those scenes are standout scenes, and he is fantastic in them. Absolutely. Our so, love for John Goodman continues through the it Coens. Does. We love us some, some Goodman. We really do. We do. But yes, the zany, meddling bad guys, and also the... Force of nature evil. Yes. Which was the motorcycle. Yes. The nameless motorcycle rider. Which, I mean, he's horrifying, but their chases 
are not only action packed in this movie, but hysterical. Which is a weird line to like it ride. Is. Like the Italian job couldn't pull it off. Right. <laughs> and if they can't pull it off, no. then but, who can? But I love the chase scenes when he goes back through the stores. Yes. And he grabs diapers and then forgets something. And then goes back, back around. Again. Yes. It's just so good. Right. And it mixes everything between like good physical comedy. It's got witty, snappy dialogue. Um, it's got like a real kind of heightened comical sense to the world that it takes place mm-hmm. in. When he's talking with his friend, and his friend comes over uh, while while Gail and and his partner are there, and uh, they're gonna talk to respectable, upstanding <laughs> folks, and then the dude proceeds to try to uh, solicit him and Ed. High and Ed to swing with them, and then uh, High runs him off and is like, "You get out of here! You quit looking at my wife." And he's like, "I'm just trying to help, man." (laughs) But like that whole interaction, as it's kind of heading that way, is just cracks me up. And a common theme in all of my lists, and honestly, anything that we talk about with with Coen Brothers outside of what I would say, Lady Killers, is their focus and their pristine ability to write dialogue. That's one of the standout features in almost all of their films for me. It doesn't matter what genre they're working with. It could be a zany comedy like this one, which this was their first zany comedy. Which is crazy. It's Because it's, they nailed it. It's like mind Out of the gate, they nailed it. But even in a zany comedy, you know, you could take a zany comedy from another directing duo and, you know, let's talk about a movie that we like. But Dumb and Dumber is oh yeah hysterical. But the dialogue is nowhere near on the level of sophistication and cleverness that Raising Arizona is. And that, to me, is sort of a staple of the Coen brothers, is that they're able to not only get their point across, not only make you laugh, but really get the dialogue perfect. Oh, pitch perfect. And, and I think it's, it's, it's great. And, you know, one of the reasons that I debated where this should be on my list, I knew right out that it would be on my list. But this is notably Edgar Wright's favorite film. Which I can 100% yeah. understand. Because I feel that this movie exists in Edgar Wright DNA. You it does, I mean? or Edgar Wright exists in Coen Brothers' DNA. Sure. Let's put it chronologically. No, I was going to say that that this movie makes up part of Edgar Wright's yeah. DNA. That's what I meant. Okay. Like, so it's Edgar Wright's DNA is made up of these other little parts. Well, and I would say, and I'll, like, Hot Fuzz is, I won't say a synonymous movie with this, but it feels like it takes place in that askew world. Sure, everything's a little bit heightened. Everything's a little bit farcical. But it's still serious. Still has some there legitimate action. Yeah, they're, I mean, when we talk about stakes, they kidnap kids in this movie. That's the whole plot <laughs> yes. device of the movie. Which I have a funny story about the kids, that uh, the actor kids okay. who were in it. Um, one of the babies that was playing the quintuplets got fired by the Coen brothers because it learned to walk during the filming process and they couldn't have them walking around. And because of that, one of the other Holly, quote unquote Hollywood parents uh-huh. was so scared of their child losing a job. They started putting their kids shoes on backwards to discourage their child to learn walking. 
amazing. Responsible parenting at its If finest. that doesn't sum up the idea of a Hollywood parent. I don't know I, what does. Exactly. Nothing does. So, yes, that is, is strong on my list. I debated where it should be, but it ended up being on number five, which even is kind of a surprise to me well, because of how clearly it's not too surprising right. because we shared that. So... I'm glad we got to discuss that. Solid number five. Yay. I agree with your placement. Okay, awesome. Well, then I will take that and move on to my number two. <laughs> That's a bad idea. Nope. <laughs> Shouldn't do that. Uh, okay, I'm going to put this drink down, <laughs> and I'm going to move on to my number four. Yes. The second one on my list. Jay's number four. And I'm actually going to go in order. Okay. Directly to their third film, Miller's Crossing. Okay. Miller's have you seen Miller's Crossing? I have seen half of Miller's Crossing. Oh my Crossing. god, you have to watch all of Miller's okay. Crossing. All right. Miller's Crossing is phenomenal. All right. Um now it, this is a straight up movie, right? It is a straight like a straight up drama it or is. crime drama. Now, what I would say though is that it's a straight up <coughs> it's a straight up gangster drama set in prohibition times. Okay. But they incorporate some of the zany character moments and definitely character quirks into this film that they established in Raising Arizona, but nowhere nearly as heightened. So it's a little convoluted, the plot, but I'll give you a basic summary of what it is. Is Gabriel Byrne, who this movie practically launched his career. Okay. He is the second in command um, lieutenant to Albert Finney. Okay. Who is a well-established, very feared and well-connected mob boss in some unnamed metropolitan town. Okay. A lot of people think it's New York City, but it's never named in the movie. They fall in love with the same girl, uh, Mary Gay Harden, Marsha Gay Harden. Albert Finney and... And Gabriel Byrne. Gabriel Byrne, okay. And they're <clears throat> sleeping with the same girl, um, but Albert Finney doesn't know about it. Okay. Uh, at the very beginning of the film... Um, a rival mob boss is coming to Albert Finney, basically asking him to kill a crooked bookie that's costing him a lot of money. Okay. But the crooked bookie is under Albert Finney's protection because he just happens to be the brother of Marsha Gay Harden. Holy shit. Okay. Played fantastically by John Turturro. Awesome. Their first collaboration with John Turturro, one of many. And... Uh, Gabriel Byrne's character is extremely level-headed and is saying, don't piss off this guy. You don't want to go to war over this idiot con man that you just happen to have a romantic connection with through his sister. Right, right, And Albert Finney does not listen to him, starts a gang war, basically, and then it comes out in an argument that they're having that Gabriel Byrne says, I'm sleeping with... With Marsha Gay Harden. Like, I'm sleeping with her. Oh, jeez. Basically to make him mad enough to say that your, your, your vision is muddled on this one. So he gets the shit kicked out of him. And honestly, this movie, Miller's Crossing, should be, like, subtitled, Gabriel Byrne gets the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> okay. It happens almost every five minutes in the movie by somebody. Yikes. Um, and uh, so he gets kicked out of Albert Finney's command. Okay. He goes to the rival mob boss and says, hey, I'm going to work for you. And they say, in order to work for me, you have to kill this con man. So he takes John Turturro into the woods at Miller's Crossing to kill him. And John Turturro gives a fantastic performance, like crying. He's like, I pray to you. I pray to you. Don't kill me. You know, I don't, I, I don't deserve to die. I'm just an idiot. 
And so he, this is where the decision comes in. He decides not to kill him. He's like, leave town, never come back, and you're safe. So that happens. Two days later, John Turturro comes back to town and says, you know what? I thought about it. I have something on you, and now you have to work for me. So he gets him to try and kill the mob boss that he's now working for, which ends up then relieving his favor with Albert Finney. And he basically is in this precarious position where he's in the middle of a mob war and both sides trust and hate him at the same time. Amazing. It is that sounds Fantastic. crazy. And that was I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest, that was a pretty solid synopsizing of uh of the movie. It sounds crazy convoluted. It's very convoluted, but it's it's one of those where everything's established in the first like twenty minutes of the film. Okay. And the rest you just kind of see it play out. And it's great. And one of the things that I love about Miller's Crossing is how beautiful it is. Okay. You know, it's set in the winter in this what looks like a New England town and Miller's Crossing is beautifully shot. The opening sequences of this like black gangster top hat just laying in a road and he gets picked up by the wind and just blown down the street and it's gorgeous. So I looked into it and do you know who their cinematographer was for the first three films? I do not. Barry Sonnenfeld. Was it really? Yep. He was the Coen Brothers cinematography for, for, for the first like three or four films. What? So he did Raising Arizona, he which did. makes total sense. He did Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and uh, Miller's Crossing, and I believe maybe Fargo. That's crazy, yeah. but t- but totally, once once you put it in that prism in my mind, mm-hmm. totally makes sense. Yeah. 100% and makes also, sense. Also, this film is the first collaboration between the Coen brothers and John Turturro. It's the first collaboration between the Coen brothers and Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi making one of his first appearances in a prohibition gangster drama, which he will then pre boardwalk empire, pre boardwalk empire. Uh, Steve Buscemi actually got cast because he's a fast talking card dealer, basically. And he was the only guy that could read the dialogue fast enough for the Coen brothers. Amazing. So that's why it got cast. Amazing. And so these are all people who would, you know, become, you know, stable actors for the Coen brothers throughout the rest of their career. Sam Raimi has a cameo in it. Interesting. Sam now Raimi. I know that they have some ties. Mm-hmm. I know he has a writing credit. I think on Hudsucker Proxy. He does. They're friends. And actually, Bruce Campbell cameos in a couple later Coen Brothers films. Interesting. I, didn't I think know that. in Fargo, I believe it's in Fargo, on one of the televisions that they're watching, is Bruce Campbell's on the television, and it's an old, unaired. TV like soap opera that he was in that they just got the rights to through their connection to Sam Raimi. Amazing. So it's, it's awesome. But what, one of the things that's great about it is yes, it's a straight up gangster film. It's extremely bloody and violent as it always is. Albert Finney is fantastic, but there's a lot of humor in it. Um, And to make another connection to something we were talking about is for the life of me, I can't remember this actor's name, but the gangster that's trying to kill Harry and Lloyd in oh, uh, Dumb and yeah. Dumber. Uh, Chris Penn? Is that his name? No, that's not Chris The Penn. The mock, yeah, the guy yeah, in the middle yeah. that chokes yes. on the peppers. Yes. He's one of the gangsters. He's a henchman in this movie. And he has one of the funniest scenes in the whole film, in my opinion, is basically he's contracted by Albert Finney's rival to beat the shit out of Gabriel Byrne to convince him to do, quote-unquote, do the right thing. Mike Starr. Okay, is the name Mike. Of that actor. I never would have guessed that. Nope. But he's in a bunch of stuff, but he's in this. And 
he's in this Gabriel Byrne is sitting in a chair and this guy's like coming up to him, like rolling up his sleeves. Like I'm about to beat the shit out of you. Gabriel Byrne picks up a chair and hits him across the face with it. And he looks up and his like whole face is bleeding. He goes, Jesus, Tom, and just runs out of the room. <laughs> it makes me laugh every single time I watch it. Amazing. So that seems like a very Coen Brothers. It moment. is. And it's perfect. And then he comes back with like two other guys and they beat the shit out of him. Again, every five minutes, Gabriel Burns getting punched in the face in this Amazing. movie. So if you want to see, you know, Satan from End of Days get the shit kicked out of him, yeah. watch this is Miller's where you Crossing. Do it. But right. this is what I would consider almost a perfect encapsulation of the Coen brothers. It's, it's quirky where it needs to be quirky. It's very violent. It's a character making a singular decision against his better judgment that drives an entire plot. And it's filled with fantastic cinematography, fantastic writing. And the story is enthralling from beginning to end. Interesting. I'm into it. I think you've sold me on watching it. So that is my number Four. Not number two. It's number two. It's the second on my list. Number four four. in the ranking. All right. So, so far, your five and four are good. We've matched one, and the other one I haven't seen fully. And now I enter three, three, two, one territory, and this is where it got really difficult. Fair enough. Jay's number three. Fargo. (laughs) 1996. All right. I, I, I can watch this movie any day of the week. Yes. Like I love Fargo. Not only yes. did it, not only did it spawn one of my favorite current television shows, which we should do a whole other episode on. Let's um let's talk about it because it's also my number three. Is it your number three? <laughs> yeah. High five. All right. So so far, we've matched two on the same spot, which is interesting. So this is gonna the second half of this episode is just gonna roll by. We're just gonna yell Yahtzee. Um, but so far, I like I like that. I feel like we are accurately placing these movies. It's validating yeah. where I'm placing them on my list because you had similar feelings. I mean, I, like I said, it's hard. This one was hard yeah. because Fargo could easily be number one. Oh, totally. It could easily be number two. 100%. Has to be in the top five. Yes. I would say for me, it was a no brainer that it had to be in the top three. Yeah. This is where, when we talked prior to the episode and I said, that I had no problem figuring out my top three. It was my bottom two that actually gave me a hard time. Your Man. bottom bitches were the ones that were giving you the problems? They were. I had 99 problems, and two way. of them were Coen Brothers That's just movies. the way the bottom bitches are. That's how it goes. So, yeah. Okay, let's talk about Fargo. Fargo. Right? All right, so you 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 can start it because this is your list, and then I'll play off of you. So go well, for it. To start off, I'll start where the movie starts. One of my favorite aspects about this is that it starts with the based on a true story. Yep. Do you know the backing of this? I like do the, not. The history about this? It is not based on a true story. Okay. It is based on an amalgam of like five or six different stories, all heightened for cinematic purposes. But they put based on a true story at the beginning because at that time they were widely known as indie quirky filmmakers and they thought that by putting based on a true story at the beginning of it it would make it more widely appealing so it would give them some like clout yep and it worked and it worked because people went to see a real crime drama sure and then people enjoyed the movie so much you know it got nominated for a whole bunch Frances McDormand you know got nominated for best actress for it it sort of established them as a mainstream property so everything that came before it 
while fantastic, never really, like you said, you know, even, even raising Arizona, which people can say is their best, you know, didn't really get the credit it was due. I mean, things like Barton Fink and Blood Simple and um, Hudsucker Proxy, like, you know, all these ones that came before it, they had niched themselves. I 100% And Fargo catapulted them into the mainstream and made people realize that they were a duo worth watching, which to me is high praise for people who should have been being paid attention to before this. I 100% agree. Um, so for me, this is one of those movies that, um, much like raising Arizona kind of started the trend for like, okay, this is what, this is the framework of future Coen brothers characters. This for me was the first time that we saw what is going to be the future framework of Coen brothers story structure. So the way that Coen brothers movies play out um, especially in totally. the like crime slash comedy, like dark comedy kind of genre that they play within. Um, that becomes a very uh, consistent style for them. I felt so as far as this movie goes, I feel like, just like with Raising Arizona, this one started that trend for them. And I think that's pretty evident through the rest of their career. Like, they've, they've, I don't want to say they, they have like a cookie cutter pattern, but they have a, a distinctive Coen Brothers style. They do. There's, style. There's, it's, I've used the phrase Coen esque before. Yes. And it is true. And one of the things that I think this movie really perfected and i would say that earlier ones did it too sure but how meticulous they are in their casting oh i will definitely agree i mean francis mcdormand steve buscemi uh william, william h. h macy are peter stormare yes oh there's a funny story about peter stormare with this okay do you hear do you I, know the backstory not he turned down a role in miller's crossing and was just devastated by how he turned it down really and would just thought he had blown his chance and they did like you know movies in between sure and they offered him a role in fargo and he accepted without question it was just like yeah. yes yes he's like please god give yes it was 100 chance yes. yes that's hilarious yeah and it sort of launched his american movie career because he was a famous you know foreign actor right for a while Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love him in everything, especially so he was one of the highlights of Constantine for me. Oh, of course. As the devil. He was amazing. I mean, but, but he's great in in just about everything that he does. Now, one thing with William H. Macy's casting that I really like, and this is a story I read, and then had to validate because I didn't believe it at first, mm -hmm. but William H. Macy wanted the role of Jerry Lundergaard so bad that he, he auditioned for it, obviously. Uh-huh. And then he didn't hear anything just because the Coen brothers are silent and meticulous. Uh -huh. And he convinced himself through his anxiety that he didn't get the role. So he flew to New York where he knew they were doing pre-production and threatened to kill their dogs if they didn't give him the role. Yikes. Like, right. He, as a joke. As, right, right. Sure. But he threatened to kidnap and kill their dogs if they didn't give him the role. And they said, no, no, you, you have it. Did you not get told? Amazing. Yeah. That's fascinating. So this movie, for those who don't know or haven't seen it, shame on you, first off. Uh, just 
Flat out shame. But the basic thing, like we talked about, follows single, the Cohen. A single, a single guy single. makes a mistake, yep. and it basically unfolds the rest of the plot. In this case, it is William H. Macy plays a car salesman who hires two inept criminals to kidnap his wife in order to extort money from her father. Now, now wait a minute. Um, I want to ask a question and maybe push back. Okay. I don't think he hires both of them. I think he hires one of them, and then that person outsources the partnership to someone else. That, I believe, is correct. Yeah, because he only hires one person, I'm and that just, person yeah. outsources the job to Bushimi and Stormare. You're nitpicking. I was simply stating the plot of the movie. But no, that's Two an, criminals ended up... But that's an important plot point because he legitimately doesn't know who has his wife because the person he hired to do it didn't end up doing that is true that is fair and that is part that that is one of the parts that's based on a true story i just phrased it incorrectly you did you stated it wrong but that's one of the (laughs) things that's based on a true story that happened in north dakota is that like i think it was an insurance salesman Uh hired someone to kidnap his wife for ransom money that person outsourced it to someone else and then that third person's the person that got caught and blew the whole thing amazing so, but that's kind of how this movie plays out is this dude kind of sets into motion this series of events and things just spiral straight into a wood chipper way out of control. <laughs> and that is one of, I think, the most iconic scenes when people think yeah. about this movie well, is, when, is um, the wood chipper scene. I think the, uh, the actual wood chipper they used in the movie is now in the welcome center for the town, for the actual town in yep. North Dakota. That is true, and you can take pictures feeding your children into it. I, I and it can be on. Yeah, one hundred percent. Totally can be on. One hundred percent. It's, it's one an those, extra charge. It's an upcharge to have it turned it's on. One of those weird like legal loopholes. Yeah. That like just because it's a movie prop, it's fine if you murder in it. <laughs> now, one of the things I do want to bring up about this movie because it's an aspect that I genuinely adore about the film. Okay. Is the whole Francis McDormand character? Sure. Is it such an oddity in a crime drama to have her character in almost every sense of the word or every sense of the the reality in this movie? Not only is she a, a female, what you know, a female cop, sure. Which again, no problem here, but at the time, he's not really. She's a, the, even more so. She's the chief of police, yeah, pregnant. And pregnant. She doesn't show up for over 30 minutes in the film. So to have your main character not even make an appearance for the first quarter of the movie is unheard of, just about. And then I adore the relationship between Marge and Norm. Yeah. There's such a bright spot in this film. And that's one of the things that, you know, Coen Brothers movies are just chaotic, bloody messes. Sure. For the most part. Absolutely. And to have this bright spot of Marge and Norm having this amazing relationship is so great. It's almost a breath of fresh air every time Norm is on screen just to see them in the kitchen talking or, and I love that the movie ends with just them sort of sitting in bed and it's great. And it's sort of a thing that no one really does. You know, if, so take, you know, like, I don't want like an Independence Day or, you know, just, a, you know, a White House down, like an, an action drama, if you right. will, or a crime drama. Right, right, right. The, the plot points 
of the drama almost always affect the relationship of the main character. It almost is in screenwriting 101 that if the main character is going through something hard or dangerous or complicated, that it's going to bleed into their home life and it's going to cause strife there. Or the significant other is going to be kidnapped and put into danger in some way. But it never happens. They're just a beautiful, uplifting, happy family. And I have always thought that was so unique and weird. Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree. But I think, once again, that's one of those things that kind of becomes a Coen Brothers staple. Is Even in their darkest movies, you usually often get these small reprieve characters that kind of offer this, that breathing room in some of these characters that, let's be honest... They the Coens write bumbling characters, but yes. but nine times out of ten they're despicable people. Oh yeah, like they are all terrible, terrible people. Right, and so sometimes, especially in Fargo, in a movie that's populated by just shitty people doing shitty things, you have those two characters that kind of give just you that rays like, of sun, right? And you're like in a very desolate. And, and literally town. literal and figuratively yes. de- desolate. Um, yeah. So I totally agree. And I feel like that's kind of something that's repeated here and there throughout mm-hmm. their work in other movies as well. So that for me is a strong number three, super solid. I agree with it. So could much. have been I, higher, I, but I will just go ahead business. and make it my number three as well. I, I like that. I'm glad that I convinced you of that. You did indeed. So now we should probably circle back around and do, yeah. I think your number four is the one that we yeah. skipped. So I'll, I'll just uh, go back do to Do you want it. me to recap so, mine? Yes. Recap yours. about a lot. Yes. So my number five. So Jay, this is Jay's five through three. Jay's number five. Uh, Jay's number five is Raising Arizona from yeah. 87. Don't speak about yourself in third person. Okay. Because it's confusing. Um, <laughs> my, my number four is Miller's Crossing from 1990. And then my number three is Fargo from 1996. Solid. So let's recap mine real quick. Yes. Your number five. My number five. This is Q's number five. That's right. My number five is Raising Arizona. My number four is, oh, we haven't done that one Woohoo! Yet. My number four, big drum roll. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> no Country for Old Men. It's a fantastic film. It is a fantastic film. So let's talk about it. We should. Okay. It's on my list. Do you want me to tell you where? Um, as You can tell me as long as it's not your number one. It's it's not. It's my number two. Okay. Then, yeah. Let's okay. talk about it. So, it's my number two. Okay. So, clearly, you like that movie. I love this movie. All right. So, let's talk about it. I'll tell you why it placed four on yeah, my list. Yeah, please do, because that's going to be one that I need you to justify. Sure. Because this one was tough for me to place in the top three, but I knew it was in the top three. So cinematically, this is, I mean, you, you, anywhere you turn, any critic you talk to, this is going to be on a lot of lists as the Coen brothers. This is the pinnacle of, of their, their achievement. seminal masterpiece. Yeah, everybody has said that this is, this is, they've, this is the height yeah. that they will reach. And this is the one that got them the best picture. Yep. That is absolutely correct. Now here's the deal with this movie. <sighs> I love this movie. Uh huh. It is a very hard watch for me. It It is. It is. And this is where I kind of struggled with cinematic quality versus my sheer enjoyment yep. of it. and it, Which is why it's number two, actually, because my number one is just sheer right. enjoyment. I couldn't 
I couldn't not have it on the list mm-hmm. because I, as a film aficionado, <laughs> I absolutely respect the achievement made with this movie. I mean, it's 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 nearly perfect from beginning they to end. They took what was already a story by Cormac McCarthy. Wait, okay, and let me pause you okay. here. This is one reason it's so high on my list. I'm a Cormac McCarthy fan. I've read everything that he's written, and that book is a masterpiece. So the fact that they were able to adapt it mm-hmm. so successfully is a feat unto itself. Which we're gonna we're gonna have a, uh, an up uh, an episode coming out in a couple weeks about what it takes to successfully adapt a book into a movie. And this is going to be a discussion point for me. Oh, I have no doubt about that. Because one of the things that I love that they did, and one of the things that Cormac McCarthy was great about, and why this is sort of a marriage made in heaven, is Cormac McCarthy is amazing at dialogue. And it's documented that most of the dialogue in this film is taken directly from the book. And it's true that it is. They actually edited it down from the dialogue in the book, but they left it almost word for word in the screenplay, which I think that's crazy, but not surprising because of the way that the movie flows. Now, regarding it being a hard watch, this is one of those movies that is so bleak Mm -hmm. that Unfortunately, this movie doesn't really have those rays of sunshine like we talked about in Fargo. It does, but they're dim. The rays of sunshine are Tommy Lee Jones and his wife. Which is still... And that's just the very end. Such a dying light. Yes. In what is a very bleak and unhappy story. Um, Which Cormac McCarthy is... That's kind of his thing. I mean... Um, he has, I think it's called the border trilogy. Right. He did the um, road. He did he? the road, which we'll is talk about bleak. There is no, it's nothing but bleak. Um, there's one, oh shit. What's the one that James Franco adapted about the, oh yeah. About yeah, the yeah, mentally about. challenged, yeah. um, necrophiliac in yeah. Tennessee, the Tennessee Hills. Yeah. What is that called? Ah, oh, whatever. Hey, you you yes. talk about it. I'll find it. All right. So, um, so this movie, just for those who, you know, loosely, I'll try to summarize this best I can. Um, so Josh Brolin plays Llewellyn Moss, uh, who finds uh, money at the aftermath of a drug deal gone wrong. And kind of in the vein of Coen Brothers stories, he makes one, he decision. Makes one decision that changes and unfolds the plot of the rest of the movie. Child of God is the one I was Child of for. God? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so he takes this money. So when he does that, he puts into effect basically Anton Sugar. 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 Oh, my An God. An amazing performance by Javier Bardem. Oh, my God. It's so good. Who is basically on the hunt for this money. He is the perfect embodiment of what the... Harbinger on the motorcycle was supposed to be in Raising Arizona. Oh, I 100% agree. He is the dramatic, perfect embodiment of that force of evil character. And that's and that's all he is in this yeah. movie. It is legitimately, he is just a force of nature. Well, and one of the things that people, well, I think, because in conversations I have with people about this, they never reference, is that, no, he's a contract killer. His contract gets pulled almost 10 minutes into the film after it's established, and he doesn't care. 
Right. He is just in the force of, I've agreed to kill this person, so I'm going to do that. I don't care if you pay me or, or if you don't. I'm And I'm going to kill anyone that gets in my way. Right. Like, I think there's only one character in the whole movie that he speaks with at all and doesn't end up killing, and it's the gas station attendant lady. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the only person in the whole movie that he speaks with and doesn't murder. Right. Which shows exactly like what we're talking about with his character. So his character is this force of nature that is just carving a, a bloody path through heading towards Josh Brolin. Um, and then meanwhile, you have uh, Sheriff Bell, Tommy yeah. Lee Jones. Great who, casting. Who is the withered old mm-hmm. sheriff who is close to retirement. Easily could have been played by Jeff Bridges in Hell or High Water. <laughs> who, Danny, as Danny Glover would say, is getting too old for this shit. Yes. He is, he is the living living walking phrase i'm too old for this shit that is exactly correct um and it's basically um him heading towards his end yeah while on the trail of josh brolin's character and also uh chigur right trying to then keep josh brolin safe kind of kind of um, from this and, and it all just kind of ends up in just a real shitty place. Um, it really does. Now let, here's a, an interesting question that I want to ask you. And I think, I think for most people it would appear to have an easy answer, but I'm going to make an argument that it doesn't. Okay. Who's the main character of this movie? Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. That's the argument I would make. Okay. Most people would immediately say Josh Brolin because he's on screen the most. Now, I feel like Tommy Lee Jones was like the bookend yeah. of this. So I feel like he I f- I also felt like the the title is kind of about him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's the argument. There is no place for someone of his values in in a world that this sort of evil can exist in. Exactly. But the reason that most the reason that that question in my mind becomes hard to answer is that Josh Brolin bites it a good 30 or 40 minutes before oh, the before end the, the ending. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there's just no he never even has a chance of making it out. Nope. So that, to have your main focus character and that's why I would say I would even take a step back into being more hoity-toity about it and say when I say main character I want you to translate that as protagonist. Right, correct. Who's the force of good in this film driving the plot forward? It's Tommy it's Lee Tommy Jones. It's Tommy Lee Jones. And, and man, that final scene between him and his wife, a lot of people I know don't like it because like it doesn't really make sense. It's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Of him sitting there describing that dream, staring out the window, and then it just cuts to black. And that is the final page of the Cormac McCarthy book, that exact dream. Really? Yep. That's how the book ends okay. as well. Interesting. So they really did stay very It's true one of to the it. most accurately adapted stories for the screen that's ever been done. Interesting. Well, so it, the reason it placed my number four is while cinematically a great movie and story-wise a great story, much like a Requiem for a Dream or oh, something man. like that. It's very hard for me. I, this is not a movie that I will repeat view. It's not right. one that I'm just going to be like, you know what, hun? let Let's sit down and watch No Country for Old Men. You want to? 
Like, I will watch it when I'm in the mood to watch a good film. Like, if I'm in the mood to watch something like a Citizen Kane or, you know, just I want to I want to experience something. <laughs> a more a pretentious statement has never, never been yeah. said. When I'm in the mood for a good film and I say to myself, hmm, I feel like watching a Citizen Kane. Well, Jay, <laughs> what might you want to I this evening? <laughs> you know, but those when I'm in a mood for something of cinematic high quality. Value. Yes. I will, you know, no country for old men makes its way into that. Sure. But if I just want to enjoy my afternoon, Requiem for a Dream and No Country for sure. Old Men aren't going to be on that list. Sure. I'll watch like a like a pop star yeah. or, or like a Dumb and Dumber or something. But that's for me why it placed lower on my list. Now, it placed above Raising Arizona because of its, it's cinematic better. quality. It's, it's a better, better movie. Raising Arizona placed lower on my list because of its its early stage in the Coen Brothers career. Um, I feel like while it was kind of the proto mm-hmm. template for what they were going to do, it's exactly that. It's a yeah. proto template. It's not them at their best. Well, and this isn't a list of the most important milestones in the Coen Brothers filmography. Nope. This is our favorite ones. Right. Now, do you want to know two bits of really fun trivia about this movie? No Country for Old Men? Yeah. Yeah. No Country for Old Men. Okay. So Josh Brolin, who's the pseudo protagonist of this film. He filmed his audition tape while he was filming Grindhouse. Oh, and okay. And he couldn't get away long enough to film his audition tape. So his audition tape for No Country for Old Men is filmed on the set equipment for Grindhouse and directed <laughs> by Quentin Tarantino. What? Yeah. So his audition tape was directed by Quentin Tarantino for this film. Amazing. Two days after he got cast in the movie, uh-huh. he wrecked his motorcycle and broke his shoulder and was distraught because he thought he lost his role. And the Coen brothers were like, I mean, your character gets shot like 20 minutes into the movie, so we're just going to put your arm in a sling. Amazing. So he filmed all the stuff with out of sling at the end. And well, after all, he had healed? After he had healed. So most of the movie, he's in a sling. And he's for, legitimately has a yep. broken shoulder. Yes. That's amazing. And the other bit of fun trivia about... Way to, way to roll with it, Coen Brothers. Again, they're just geniuses. Um, genii? Yeah. Yeah, genii. Another bit of fun trivia a about this. of genius? Yeah. It was filmed in the same locations and at the same time as Paul Thomas Anderson was filming There Will Be Blood. So there are a lot of times... And the scenery makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So there were a lot of times that the Coen brothers had to stop filming because a gigantic plume of black smoke could be seen in the background. Amazing. From Paul Thomas Anderson testing his oil disaster scenes. That's amazing. Yeah. So they basically had to share the landscape. It was like, you film on these days, we'll film on these days. I was hoping you were going to be like, and in the background, you can see Daniel Plainview in in one of the I mean, almost. But yeah, they had, there's documented that a lot of scenes had to be cut and refilmed because you just saw this gigantic, like atomic plume of oil smoke come up on the back. Cause it's amazing. so flat. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's my number four, man. And it's my number two. So we'll make our, our commercial break segment at the Fair end enough. a lot shorter. Totally. So, uh, so just to move along with my list, my number yeah. three is Fargo. I, I really liked Fargo. Yeah. I, I think, you know that. I think you liked it. Number three. Worth. I, I, I liked it. 
almost exactly as much as you like. Yeah, I think so. I think we uh, pretty much have the same idea. So just real quick to roll back through my with, through Q's list, uh-huh. which is me in the third person. Nice. Don't uh, talk about yourself in the third person. You sound like an idiot. <laughs> Says Jay. <laughs> uh, so my number five is Raising Arizona. My number four is No Country for Old Men. And my number three is Fargo. I love it. I feel like we've we're pretty much nailing the Coen brothers. I we I, are each we have each gotten a Coen brother and we're just nailing him. This is a foursome that everyone wants to be a part of. <laughs> we are on air nailing, nailing the Coen We're just nailing them. Yeah. Just really and on that note, we should probably go to our sponsors. I think so as well. Bye. You want go-karts underwater? They don't work well, but they're wet. Guess what? Exhaust doesn't work 20,000 leagues down. This isn't Governor Nero's underwater go-karts. This is Lieutenant Nero's underwater go-karts. He's a top-ranking official in Atlanta. Welcome to my village, where people with mongoose faces but that also have human bodies live. I'm Chewbacca. Roar! Hey, I'm Han Solo. I'm too cool to do this advertisement. Mick Jiminy Star Wars impersonators. You need a Leia for your party? You need a Luke for your luau? <laughs> Coming this fall. Or maybe next spring, because fuck you. Controversy. Colon. The movie. Guess what? We found a country for old podcasters. We did. We did. It's right here. It's called Pennsylvania. It is. I don't know why. Punxsutawney. That's just really the first state I thought of. It's Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Podcast Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Phil. That's what they call it. Groundhog Pod. Phil Murray. <laughs> Phil Murray. <laughs> Phil Murray. <laughs> it's the Phil Murray bingo. This is the Phil Murray podcast. Yep. <laughs> we list off the filmography of Phil Murray uh, with such classics as Fostbusters. Fuck. Fipes. You know what I just thought about? What? First off, this is the first time I've said fuck this entire episode, which is a new record for me. I 100% agree. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, me. Uh, Phil Murray. Or film Murray should be a book about Bill Murray's filmography. Oh, man, I would totally read that book. Film Murray? Yeah. Come on. Come on. How is that not a thing already? Get on it, Penguin. Ugh. God damn it. Fuck. We should have written it. Now you've said fuck like twice. Damn it. <laughs> like a minute and a half. And we've now we've given away the idea. Now we have to. Okay. Well, I'm going to mail myself that idea with a postage date stamp. That's how copyrights work. It, it is. Uh, I've, I've talked with the president about it and that's totally how government works and copyrights work. <laughs> Wait, which president? Any of them. All of them. <laughs> Trump? At this, yeah. All of them. <laughs> All the presidents. I just talked to him all summer. I had him on a conference call. Yeah. He didn't really understand how Skype worked. He kept calling it Skip. (laughs) Wait, are we talking about Bush? Yes. (laughs) Gross. What? What? Hmm? All the presidents. All of them. And their men. So, uh, speaking of all the presidents, men, uh, it's time for Which was not directed by the Coen brothers. Nope. And we weren't talking about that. so this is uh, going off the rails quickly. It is like a Coen Brothers movie. Oh shit! Uh, do they do movies about trains? 
And planes and automobiles. <laughs> oh, shit. That's not them either. John Candy? Yay! He's not in any of their movies. Um, did they do Sleepaway Camp? <laughs> I think so. I think and Sleepaway Camp 3. Oh, not the second one, though. Yeah, because that the was... The second one, Sleepaway Camp, Book of Shadows. Yeah, not nobody really was best. into that. No one was into that. Nobody was into that. Oh, my uh, God. So, uh, Coen Brothers, Jay, it is time for your two and one. All right, so my number four... Yes. <laughs> no. My uh, my number actually two. my number four yeah. is your number two. Oh my god! Now we're in a weird loop or time loop, and I just can't handle it. Um, Jesus, he's just taking uh, a real number two. Oh <laughs> my god! Some upstream color is about to happen What's in my happening? pants. My, um, what was it? My mind is the sun and something. That's time a, is a flat circle. Yep, one hundred percent. Um, so my number two, which you, was your number four, is No Country for Old Men. Yes. So since we've already talked about that at length, I'm going to skip to my favorite top number one Coen Brothers movie of all time. Yes. Now, you know me very well. Yes. I'm going to see if you can guess it. Uh, intolerable cruelty. <laughs> That's it. That's 100%. I knew it. it. Yeah. I knew uh, it. I, I want to. Okay. I, I do know you very well. I want to guess that it's mine. Is it? It might. It might be. But I don't think that it is. Okay. Well, so I'll, I don't want to give away mine. Okay. Well, then I'll guess, and you can just you can bury the lead. Can you guess your own? Yes. All right. Um, I think my number one. Oh no, I'm right. It's the Big Lebowski from 1998. Nice. That, it, is, it is not my number one. I've talked about it in our 90s comedy yes. episode. Is one of my favorite yes, comedies of the whole decade. But there is something about this movie, and I I debated whether No Country or this was going to be my number one. I will give you this. It is my number two. Hey, that's close enough. It's my number two. So Big Lebowski is my number two. Big Lebowski is hands down my favorite Coen Brothers movie. I, I think that the dramatic elements and the story of it are very well put together. Um, I mean, hell, when Steve Buscemi's character passes away at the end, I get choked up, and then it's hysterical when they dump the ashes and they can't dump the ashes. It's just a perfect mix of everything that the Coen brothers do. There's quirky elements to it. There's crime drama to it. There's a person making you know, a mistake and sticking to their guns of trying to get this rug back. It seems like something nondescript. Yep. Jeff Bridges, I mean, yeah, Jeff Bridges is is perfect. When you talk about casting, you got John oh, Goodman, man. who couldn't be better cast. Steve Buscemi, who couldn't be better cast. Uh, even John Turturro as his Jesus character, who a spinoff movie is in the works for yeah, that. Yeah, I was about to say that. Is, is perfect. You got Peter Stormare. Hell, you've got Flea. I mean, you literally have everyone in here. You've got Julianne Moore. Yes. You've got Tara Reid. Charlize Theron. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sam oh. Elliott. I mean, literally, it's like a who's who of actors in Hollywood. Oh, fantastic actors outside of Tara Reid. Um, no, I think you mean <laughs> including top of the list. She did get Reed. robbed for. Um, I don't know if you've seen Sharknado Eight. I was the which what was it? Uh, Sharknado, the the Sharkening. The, well, there's the Sharkening, but then there's they have one that's in space. The spacing? No, it's it's a it's a play on the Force Awakens. 
Oh, it's it's the it's the fourth awakens. Yes, that's it. The fourth awakens. Sharknado, the fourth awakens. So it, she got robbed yep. at the Academy Awards with that. With she that really did. She, uh, no, but she actually got robbed. Yes. Like, <laughs> she got physically assaulted and mugged Which outside was weird, of the Academy Awards. Because it turned out that she robbed herself, sort of like an OJ situation. Right. It was actually just a ploy to try to garner some notoriety once again. She was like, "Oh, I got mugged." But then security footage looked like an excerpt from Fight Club, and it was just her beating the shit out of herself. And it was just her wearing her own pantyhose over her head, yeah, yeah. which were just there already, which, yeah, was, weird. which was weird. Which was Nobody strange. really talked about that. <laughs> but I mean, uh, it, poor it, Tara Reed. It really is, in my mind, in my opinion, the perfect epitome of what a Coen Brothers movie is. It has all the Coenisms that you could ever want. The acting and the dialogue is so perfectly on point. The little, it doesn't even have to be like their long monologues. Their long monologues are fantastic, but even some of the, the quippier things, like the rug brought the room together. Totally. And, and I talked about this in the 90s comedy episode, but one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is about a three minute scene of you watching Jeff Bridges build a barricade to his front door, <laughs> only to realize that the door opens out. Yeah, it's it's perfect. But it but that's the level of of cleverness. Yes, if that's a word that goes into their writing, it, it really does. And you know, I just how dedicated Jeff Bridges was to the role. Like he wore his own clothes for the movie, so they would look rumpled and worn in, and he would look comfortable in them. Um, John Goodman, whose opinion. Everyone knows we hold in high regard. He has said this is his favorite movie that he's ever been in. Um, you know, before every scene, Bridges would ask the uh, the Coen brothers, hey, did the dude burn one on the way over here? So he would know how to act in the scene, like whether he was supposed to be coming down from a high or not. Um, it is just... Great, And I, I know I'm just saying these platitudes over and over again, sure. but it's hard to describe one. It's hard to describe the plot in any way that makes sense and makes it sound like a great film. And two, it's one of those that you kind of have to experience and dedicate yourself to paying attention to because it sort of ekes into you. Totally agreed. Um, so interesting factoid is uh, the dude is inspired by two people that the Coen brothers actually know. Uh, one of them is Jeff Dowd. I was about to say Jeff Bridges. Uh, he is American film producer and political activist. Um, but uh, they met him on their first feature, Blood Simple. Um, but, so his his contribution to the dude character is uh, he was a member of the Seattle Seven. Amazing. Uh, he loved to drink white Russians. Of course he did. And he was known as the dude. <laughs> uh, so then it was also the other half of the dude came from a guy, Peter Exline, um, who they were. He was a friend of the Coen brothers. Um, he was a Vietnam War vet who lived in a shitty apartment and was proud of a rug that tied the room together. <laughs> uh so that that was the inspiration, the inspirado, right, for the story, if you will, um, which I find pretty fascinating. Like, I just love how often they base characters on realistic people that they know and bring in those quirks to make their characters more have more depth. 
totally and more reality and they do it in such a, a good clever way they know what to take they know what to leave out they know what to heighten and they know what to downplay I mean, and this movie is just a great example of that. And one of the things I said about it eking into you totally is the longevity of this movie is almost proof enough of how much of a phenomenon it has been. I mean, there's hell, there's a church of the latter day dude that people actually go to and quote unquote worship at Jeff Bridges as a musician. His backup band is known as the abiders. I mean, this movie has taken on a life of its own. I would credit this movie as single-handedly saving the idea of the drink of a white Russian. They also have, uh, is it Lebowski Fest? Yeah. Which is an entire convention and Mm get-together just celebrating the big Lebowski. Yeah. Well, I even think that when, um, oh, no, it was recent. So recently, John Goodman was awarded uh, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That happened this year, which, by the way, that took way too long to happen. Oh, 100%, definitely. But even in his acceptance of his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Jeff Bridges came up and basically introduced him as the dude. Oh, so of everything that John Goodman has done and everything he's being awarded for with his Hollywood Star Walk of Fame... It was Jeff Bridges as the dude from this movie that stood out as the real honoring memorabilia for the event, which, again, speaks speaks miles to me about the quality of this film. And again, it's not one that's straightforward. I mean, there's like two or three dream sequences that make very little sense. The music in it is amazingly well placed and well thought out. It's almost as well placed musically as like a Quentin Tarantino film or an Edgar Wright movie. Oh, Um, definitely. I mean, it's just in every layer, the movie is nearly perfect. I will agree with that statement. So that for me is why it's my number one. That for me is why it's my number two. I like it. I like it. So that actually wraps up my list. So I'll go back through my five and we can get to your number two which is basically the only one left. Yes. So um, my number five is uh, Raising Arizona from 1987. Nice. Uh, My number four is Miller's Crossing from 1990. Also nice. And this is one that I don't think a lot of people have gone back and watched. I highly encourage it. Um, My number three is Fargo from 1996. Triple nice. Number two is No Country for Old Men from the the year of our Lord, 2007. Not nice, but very good. And then um, number one is The Big Lebowski from 1998. Dude, that's the best. So The the Big Lebowski also has one of my favorite interactions between two characters ever. Is it when John Goodman pulls the Uzi out in the car? It's when John Goodman yells at Steve Buscemi and tells him to shut the fuck up, Donnie. I actually think there there is a funny story about that is I think, and I'd have to go back and rewatch it and actually specifically map this out, but I don't think Steve Buscemi's character finishes a single sentence in the whole movie. Because Walter... Because Walter always yells at him. And the Coen brothers did that on purpose because Steve Buscemi's character talks so much in Fargo. That's hilarious. I think there's something like, uh, you know, Peter Stormare never finishes a sentence because... Um, Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi always, always interrupts him and he has something like 150 lines of dialogue or something in that film which is crazy. crazy so because he talks so much in that 
they wrote his character in this movie to never finish a sentence. That's pretty hilarious. I just love John Goodman's whole shut the fuck up, Donnie. His, and again, there there's another Cohenism is the kind of the bumbling sidekicks. And even they have, you know, Peter Stormare's character and the ferret totally. and Flea. My God, Flea is in this movie. There was um, a really weird rumor going around for a while that I read, or not rumor, but theory, that Donnie... Do you remember? Did you hear this? That Donnie was like a hallucinant, a hallucination of Walter. No. And that he didn't actually exist, and that the whole like when they're doing, when they're getting rid of his ashes uh-huh. at the end, that it's actually like more of a metaphorical thing, like it's a part of Walter that has I, died. I've never heard that, and I don't want to believe that just because I like the interactions between the yeah. three of them so. It much. got really trippy. Yeah, that sounds heady. very trippy. Um, I just prefer to have Steve have be Buscemi's, straightforward. Yeah, have Donnie be straightforward and be who he was. Um, I mean, and John Goodman makes me laugh out loud throughout oh, yeah. this whole movie. Uh, again, I mentioned the Uzi scene, but it's so funny when he pulls out the Uzi. Yeah. Jeff Bridges yells, "Where the fuck did you get an Uzi?" And he immediately loses it out the window. Yeah, <laughs> it's so anticlimactic, but so perfect. Right? No, so, it, that's oh. it's definitely deserves to be high on the list. Uh, so, th- so let's get back to yours. So, uh, we, we know you're five through three. We yep. know you're number one. No, so- you know my number two. Oh, we know you're number two. So I need to know your favorite oh, Coen brothers. Oh boy. Okay. Cause I have some honorable mentions that I want us to at least reference because people should see them that I honestly feel sick to my stomach that I couldn't include them. I on the feel list. like this is going to be a divisive number one. Okay. Is it, is it lady killers? No. Is it Hudsucker proxy? No. Okay. Then my, they go my number one. Is, oh brother, where art thou? Okay, and I will say why. Is it? Wait, can I guess why? Sure, because it's basically their take on a musical. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is one reason. Is uh, it? Two, do you just really love mythology? I do. Okay, absolutely. It it ha- it incorporates the Odyssey. Uh, also, it has some of what I feel is the best. Coen brother performances by some of the some of their stable of actors. I will uh, agree with that, and I'll say the one line in that movie that makes it okay for me. I, I'm not. This is your list. Okay, it's not in my top five, and it's not in my top five for a reason. But it is immensely rewatchable. Yes, so I'll give it that. But there is one part of that movie that kind of epitomizes the greatness of it to me. And it's in the movie theater, and it's... We thought you was a toad. We thought you was a toad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it encapsulates the stupidity of the characters, yep. their naivety and childlike belief sure. in things, and just the sheer brevity and humor of everything in that movie. For me, the reason this movie is number one, A, I love... The aesthetic that they mm-hmm. gave this movie and also the soundtrack for this movie. The soundtrack is one that I hear a lot of people talk about. And I, you know, with Soggy Bottom Boys and sort yep. of almost repopularizing Americana folk. Sure. Um, so that to me is acceptable as a reason why to kind of catapult this movie up. But nowhere near for me was it a reason to put it above some of these sure. others. So I uh, will continue on as to why it is um for me it's one of the most quotable uh coen brothers movies to this day i still walk around and i'm like damn we're in a tight spot <laughs> yes. or 
I said to my barber last week when he offered me a new hair product, I said, I don't want fop. You're a dapper man. I'm a you're dapper a, Dan man. You're a dapper Dan man. <laughs> That's what I told him. Uh, I also say I am the damn pedophilias all the time. <laughs> I love the verbiage that they give yeah. the George Clooney character, how he is this like intellectual moron. He has an air of confidence that he doesn't deserve for right. sure. Well, and to your point about it being quotable, and I mentioned it earlier, is this is one of their movies that relies very heavily on the brevity of wit. And a lot of their movies are very funny in conceit and they're very funny in action. And it's hard to describe why some of it's hilarious, but this is a movie and I'll give it to you that the dialogue is so quippy that it makes it very quotable. I 100% agree. Um, So I love the setting. I love the, the great depression kind of era setting. I love the visual look of this film and how they made everything kind of sepia tone. Yeah. I love that. And there was a lot of work that went into mm-hmm. making the film appear the way that it Well, and it that was. goes back to their, you know, it's a Cohenism, if you will, of just how good they are at their genre. Because that was a Southern Gothic, like, uh, Southern Gothic, basically, mythology story. Right. Um, I love just all of the different pieces that are incorporated into it i mean they run into the the ku klux klan right they have a run-in with tommy johnson a <laughs> blues player yeah who sold himself or sold his soul to the devil to learn how to play the guitar at the crossroads um they have all of these interesting like depression era right americana mixed in with a very classic story which is the odyssey yeah. basically and that to me is one thing that i will point out that i've always been immensely impressed with with this movie is I love the Coen brothers original stories. Sure. You know, I love blood simple raising Arizona, you know, Fargo, um, <clears throat> big Lebowski, obviously, uh-huh. but they may be, and I'll go out on a limb and say this, but they may be the best screenwriters at adapting stories for, for their end means like no country for old men was a straight adaptation, but they knew exactly how to do it. This, the way they adapted the Odyssey into a Southern Gothic Depression era story and still kept all of the main points. They meet with the Cyclops, John John Goodman. Goodman. They meet the Sirens. Um, He does the trial to get his wife back. He's lost at sea with the flood. Yep. I mean, it, the way they adapted it is so impressive and clever. Yes. Like it is so clever without being on the nose like mm-hmm. so like oh. Yeah. It's not punny. Yeah. It's it's smart. It's not like um and and I actually don't mind this movie, but uh oh hell, what's her name? Emma Stone, the Easy A. Oh, okay, yeah. You know that it's a, Yeah, it's I actually a, enjoy that movie. Yeah, it was a modern day adaptation of, of you know, Scarlet, Scarlet Letter. Letter. It is pretty on the nose. Sure. They even reference that story as for some of her activities. Right. You know, there are adaptations that they are winking at it very hard. There is almost no wink in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But it adds a layer of if you know that's what they're doing, it makes it more impressive. And if you don't know what they're doing, it legitimately does not matter. Sure. And that's what impresses me about it. Um, so that's definitely a big thing. Um, 
It is one of, hands down, my absolute favorite George Clooney performances of all time. I, w- I would say maybe outside of like Michael Clayton. Uh-huh. It it's is his, your favorite, it's his, his best. best. And that's, so it perfectly matched, Talk and we've talked several times on this list about casting. Mm-hmm. It perfect that character perfectly matched what I, what my yeah. ideal of George Clooney is. Mm-hmm. A very like handsome kind of swagalicious guy. <laughs> I like swagalicious. Who is basically coasting on undeserved confidence confidence yeah and so it's like because he's been able to skate by on good looks and luck you know what i mean he thinks he is the best at just all of these things and he's just not yeah and george i don't know if that's just me openly hating on george (laughs) clooney he embodies that so perfectly that it fits it absolutely fits um once again, you've got uh, John Turturro, who is awesome. And John Turturro is, and I do not think he gets the credit he deserves just throughout his career oh, and his no. filmography. Even in the movies where, even in bad movies like uh, Secret Window, uh-huh. he's great in Secret Window. He is great. Honestly, I would encourage everyone to go back and watch Miller's Crossing because that's also For John Depression era. But it's Depression-era gangster, not Depression-era Southern Gothic. John Turturro, by himself, is great. I was watching it last night to to um, to kind of amp up for this podcast. Uh-huh. And my wife was just walking through. It was like 11.45, and she was like, hey, I'm going to go to bed. And it was a John Turturro scene. And she stayed downstairs for like 25 minutes and just watched his scene because she couldn't leave the room. He's that engaging. I mean, and then the stuff he did this year in The Night Of – He's he's fantastic, and I don't think he gets the credit he deserves as just the caliber of performer that he is. I, and this movie is definitely that's on showcase all throughout this film. Oh, absolutely agreed. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of my my role on this man. Okay, like, so now that I know you're number one, I want to mention some honorable mentions, and you gave me a really good segue okay. to mention one. And I mentioned that I'm sick to my stomach that some of these didn't make it onto my list. Sure. But for your love of Coen Brothers and your love of musicals, I wanted so badly to have Inside Lewin Davis on this list. Because when it comes to Coen Brothers musicals, that actually is my favorite. Sure. I Have you seen that one? I have not. Uh, go home tonight and watch it immediately. Okay. It is a musical. All right. Oscar Isaac is a godsend. Okay. The music is great. John Goodman is in it, and he is great. Um, and it, it's not very funny, but it's very character centric. Okay. And it is this, be- it is this fantastic little portrait of kind of a mini story. The stakes aren't very high. Um. But and the music is fantastic. That's one of the soundtracks. I'll listen to that soundtrack over and over and over again because just like Oh Brother Where Art Thou is Americana folk, this one is Brooklyn singer songwriter. Okay. So that's the whole music genre. It's kind of pre Bob Dylan, Greenwich Village singer songwriter folk. Cool. And it's it's great. And if you want to see Oscar Isaac give the performance of a lifetime, even outside of 
Um, you know, I mean, Rogue One, obviously, but even outside of, um, oh, what am I thinking of? That Android movie. Oh, oh, uh, Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Watch Inside Lewin Davis. I think that if you, after you watch this film, you might consider re- reordering some of your list and knocking some of okay. these off. It's that good. And then the other one was Blood Simple. You know, as an honorable mention, their first film is still one of their best. And it's so impressive to watch not only a director, but a director writer duo come out of the gate with something that good. Agreed. That still stabilizes all of their Cohenisms, at least in some sort of proto fashion that they would stick with for the rest of their career. I can get behind that. So, I mean, if you liked uh, the, uh, the, uh, we saw this one together, but George Clooney's dumb confidence actor in Hail Caesar. Oh, yeah. He's great in that. Oh, totally. That's now, actually, I would say that's, uh, that should have been on the list. I would say it's definitely in my top seven. Only because um, I feel like it's kind of one of those big, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's like their version of like a Busby Berkeley. Yeah. Kind of like movie. bullets over Broadway. Yeah, type totally. of thing. I mean, and it, it has a lot of their, you know, stable cast of Gabby I mean, John Goodman's in it. Yep. But it had, it expands it. You know, Josh Brolin comes back. George Glooney comes back. Channing Tatum. Who's great in it. Totally. Surprisingly great. Totally. Um, I mean, and everyone is again on you know, Tilda Swinton is amazing as both of the sisters that she plays. Um, but it is one that I I highly recommend to people who haven't seen it too. So those are kind of some of my honorable mentions. But I just personally to you outside of this podcast and just between me and you, go watch Lou, Inside Lewin Davis as soon as you possibly can. I will. So uh, that brings us to the end of the list, man. It does. I think we we have a game that we've put together. Yes. That, that I'm excited about. So we should hear from sponsors. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Bill Murray? Yeah. Let's talk about Bill Murray. Uh, he's a great American actor. He is. I like him a lot. Uh, national treasure. You should listen to our other stuff too episode on the legend of Bill Murray. Yes. But yeah. We we have future parts coming out. It's going to be a trilogy. <laughs> it is the holy trilogy. Uh. But, uh, yeah, so we host, we at High Five are big fans, and we host a monthly game night featuring a little game that we created called Bill Murray Bingo. And if you're listening to this on the week that it's released, we actually did this game two nights ago at the Crying Wolf in Nash- in East Nashville. And it was a huge success. It was. As it always is. As it always is. And we're, we're saying that from the future, looking at the past, not knowing That's what right. it's going to be, but we know it's going to be. That's right. It will be because it's the future past. So we hope to see Days you guys at the past. next one. Because this is the last Wednesday of every single month. Last Wednesday of every month. I mean, you can't miss it. Yeah, we've got. You don't even have to know the date. You just think to yourself, is this the last Wednesday? And here's some great things about it. It's a free game. Yep. It's great food from the Crying Wolf. Correct. And we have some amazing sponsors from around Nashville that are giving us prize packs to give away for this dumb little game that we've created. So, like, hair product prize packs photography prize packs uh um, soaps and lotions and bath bomb prize packs and then like custom artisan decorative jewelry accessories i mean it's It's fucking awesome there's really no reason you shouldn't be there there's something for everyone so right now open up your iCal or go on your android phone and log in the last wednesday of this upcoming month the crying wolf east nashville log the last Wednesday of every yeah. month. Recurring a event. A recurring event. Recurring calendar invite. Last Wednesday of every month, East Nashville, The Crying Wolf, 
Bill Murray Bingo. We'll see you there. And in the meantime, here's some, here's some fun. Hey, do you need your nipples repaired? How about some signs? Come on down to Ted Swine's Nipple Repair and Signs. It's two ladies, Barb and Tammy, and they've got bait and tackle. And we'll keep your coin safe. It's a bonanza. And it's beautiful. <laughs> Terry Cruz arrested on an unrelated coffee charge. Have you ever been so carbonated and caffeinated and also other natives that you can't even think straight? Wrongly imprisoned for 45 years. Coming out in 2019. <laughs> It's game time. Game time for time the for Cohen brothers. And also the Cohen sisters. Are there Cohen sisters? I don't know. There Are should they? be Cohen sisters. Can we be the Cohen sisters? Yes. Uh, as of right now, hashtag Cohen sisters means us. Q and J, the Cohen sisters. sisters. I love it. Yeah. Um, so it. are you excited for this game that you know nothing about that I've put together? Nope. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, well, because... We're focused on brothers, a brother-directing duo. Yes. I've put together a, a game based around other famous directing brother duos. Okay. And I've called this game lovingly based off the common colloquialism, uh-huh. bros uh-huh. before uh-huh. strong feminine role models. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. I'm changing it around because what I want to do is smash the patriarchy. Am I right? Exactly. Fuck them. Yeah. (laughs) I guess. Just fuck all of them. So fuck them to the death. To death. Um, So bros before strong feminine role models. Yes. So what I've done is I've cataloged at seven or eight famous brother directing duos. Uh-huh. They've all worked with very strong leading ladies throughout their careers. So I'm going to list off the names of famous leading ladies that make up the breadth of these these duos' career. Okay. And then I'm going to see if you can guess it. And then I've got four clues for each one. The last clue is an actual movie that they directed, which should give it away. Okay. So I want to see if you can guess them based off these strong feminine role models. Okay. Okay. So the first one, I'm going to keep it pretty easy to start. Okay. Well, I don't know how easy, but <laughs> first one is Winona Ryder. Uh huh. Millie Bobby Brown. Uh huh. Eleven. The Duffer Brothers. Yeah, I know this. Stranger yeah. Things. Stranger Things. The Duffer Brothers. Newer to the scene, but but still important. An earned and deserved spot. Yes. Okay. The next one. Carrie Ann Moss, uh-huh. Natalie Portman, uh-huh. Christina Ricci. The Wachowski siblings. That is correct. Yes. The last two clues were Mila Kunis and Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> um, okay. Doing good so far. Uh, You're nice. on a roll. Nice. Um, start, it's going to start to get a little bit harder. Okay. Lauren Hawley, uh-huh. Vanessa Angel, uh-huh. Cameron Diaz, and Renee Zellweger. Fairly Brothers. Bingo. Aha! All right. I know my brothers. <laughs> Here we go. Yes. Now, this one's not a directing duo, but they are partnership and brothers. Okay. Carrie Ann Moss again. Uh-huh. Scarlett Johansson. Uh-huh. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh-huh. Anne Hathaway. Ugh. And this is brothers? Mm-hmm. But they're not a directing duo. No. 
Carrie Ann Moss, Scarlett Johansson, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Aunt Hathaway. Uh, and if you say I give up, I'll give you the movie. Do, 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 do. I don't know. The movie is Memento. Oh, uh, the Nolan brothers. Yep. So Christopher and Christopher and Jonathan. Jonathan Nolan. Uh, Anne Hathaway from um, Interstellar. Yep. Maggie Gyllenhaal from Dark Knight. Yep. Uh, Scarlett Johansson from from um, the Good the Good Man. I forget which one she was. In. I don't know. But they're they're there. Solid. Solid. Okay. This next one, I like them, and I'm gonna see if you can get them. Okay. Um, I don't have actresses because they've only directed one film, but they've worked on a shit ton of movies. Okay. They're actually special effects brothers. Critters. Okay. Ernest Scared Stupid. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And their director one is Killer Clowns from Outer Space. The Chioto Brothers. Damn right they are. Yeah. From what actually one of my favorite bands is the Chiotos. Chiotos nice. Brothers. Nice. I like well, it. The Chiodos, the band was actually named Chiodos Brothers when they first started, uh-huh. but then they got sued, so they just by the Chiodos yes, Brothers. So they just named it Chiodos. I like it. Okay, here we go. Tara Reed, Ali Leroy, Tony Collette, and Scarlett Johansson. Let me read them again. Yes. Tara Reed. Allie Leroy, Tony Collette, uh-huh. and Scarlett Johansson. The two standouts here are T- Tara Reed and Scarlett Johansson. The Coen Brothers? <laughs> no. Uh, American Pie is the movie. Ah, okay. Who is the, the Whites Brothers. I don't know them. Yeah, uh, Chris Whites and uh, Ethan Whites, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, they are a directing duo. They did American Pie. Uh-huh. They also did um, In Good Company, which is with Scarlett oh, Johansson. Okay. And uh, I think actually one of them was a producer on Rogue One. Okay, here we go. Julie Haggerty, Lucy Gutteridge, Priscilla Presley, and Bette Midler. <laughs> no idea? No fucking clue. You know them, I promise you. The movie is Airplane. Oh, uh, the Zucker Brothers. Damn right. The Zucker Brothers. Zucker Brothers. Nice. Because like uh, Top Secret, Airplane, um, Priscilla Presley is from um, Top Gun. Uh, not Top Gun. Hell. Um, Police, squ- uh, Police Squad. Um, let's see. Do I have any others? Nope, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and end of game. But you know, you actually you got you got more than I thought you would. You got like five out of seven, so well done, well done. I am uh, very intelligent, yes, and also the most humble. Yes, yeah, you still. Like, that's my joke. You still. My joke. Um, I'm probably like out of like on a scale of one to humble. I'm like the humblest. You're the most humblest. Yep, I am the most humblest. I like. So that. that's pretty solid, man. Uh, so far this is a great episode. Or I, all in all, this is a great episode. I am really so far. It's so far good. at the end we'll see what happens with the rest of the episode it's pretty good but so far it's pretty good uh we talked coen brothers we did we talked lots of other directors we talked uh m Shyamalan for some reason yeah uh we talked with fairly brothers quite a bit quite a bit 
Uh, we talked about being brothers. Yes. Yeah. You and I. Yes. We talked about band of brothers. We did. We talked about uh, the Smucker Brothers. Yeah, the Smucker Brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did. Uh, we talked about. Uh, we talked about the movie brothers and three brothers. Yep. Uh, we talked about the uh, Mark Wahlberg movie Four Brothers. We talked about Super Mario Brothers. We did. Uh, we talked about uh, getting our druthers about brothers. We talked about uh, the brothers' status on Facebook. We did. Uh, we also talked about... Uh... That's it. That's really all we talked about. We pretty I much got, covered it. I got nothing. But in the meantime, if anybody else can think of any brother-related topics that they would like to discuss with us, they can always reach us on Twitter, on the tweeter, at... Hi, the number five, the podcast. Or a reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com, high five, the podcast, all spelled out. Or on our website, which is just high five, the podcast.com. All spelled out. All spelled out. All letters, no numeros. Uh, they can reach us on Instagram. We're on there at high five, the podcast. And then, you know, as we always say, we really appreciate it. So if you like the show, you know, rate us and leave us reviews on anywhere that you listen, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or just on our website. Um, we love Google to, Play Music. We're yeah. on there too. Don't forget. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we love to we love to interact with people who love the show. Um, so send us your thoughts. Send us your top five lists. Um, and then also check out our Letterbox account. Right. I was going to remind gonna, you. Letterbox. I'm going to be updating the our Letterbox account with this top five. Nice. Um, and then it'll have a link to the episode as well, but. Uh, we're rating a lot of movies that we're not talking about on the show. Um, you can follow us there and just, you know, let's have a good time talking about movies. We love movies. We hope you do, too. We love movies. And we love you. Aw. The end. Bye. And that's a wrap, everybody. Cut, Casper. That's a wrap. Cut, printed. What happens in the next reel? Cut. Okay, that's a print. Okay, cut. That's a wrap. That's a wrap, people. Now let's get the hell out of here.